My name is Justin Kluwer, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to get manly and burly and conservative, which is very poorly timed in this political climate, uh, considering what's happening now. Holy moly. Because we're going to be talking about writer-director John Milius, the man behind Conan the Barbarian, Big Wednesday, Red Dawn, <laughs> everyone's favorites. Have any of our listeners ever quoted to themselves the line... You've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? How about the line, go ahead, make my day? Or heck, how about the line, I love the smell of napalm in the morning? (laughs) Say that every time I wake up. We can credit all of those zingers and more to Mr. John Milius. A lot of this man's legend, for those to whom he is legendary, rests on the fact that he was uh, a member of... You know, not one of the most beloved members, but a member of the new Hollywood. So he was a friend of Scorsese, Spielberg, Lucas, Coppola, Schrader. And he was their good friend. Like in the documentary that we watched for this episode, Milius, everybody is just happy to talk up his character and his talent. And that they considered out of their entire group that John was the one that was going to break off and be successful because he seemingly had that drive and that big personality that someone needed to be a Hollywood player, an artist, if you will. It's well known that Spielberg and Lucas each traded gross points on their 1977 films Star Wars and Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But did you know that they also traded gross points with a man by the name of John Milius on his film, Big Wednesday? Don't you mean the surfing picture that stars William Catt, John Michael Vincent, and Gary Busey? Uh, That would be it. A Star Wars-sized hit of the time. Uh, John Milius is also somewhat legendary for having inspired the character of Walter Sobchak, uh, played by John Goodman in The Big Lebowski. I think he was also an inspiration for the John Belushi character in 1941. John Milius wrote 1941 alongside uh, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale. So John Milius has his hands in all of these pies. I mean, we didn't even mention that he wrote Apocalypse Now, which is probably his most famous credit. Now, listening to this... You folks out there in podcast land may think that uh, I'm a huge John Milius fan. I gotta say, it's been a while on this podcast that I've enjoyed working on it less than this week. Well, you know, John Milius is one of those guys that I think that when you're becoming a cinephile, you kind of grab onto because he's the outliner. He's the underdog in some way, but at the same time, he has that big, boisterous personality that makes it easy to kind of like and to want to know more of. The issue comes about when you do a podcast like this and you have to watch a lot of his films in quick succession. And you go, oh, yeah, I understand why he wasn't as successful as he could have been. And he worked better as a writer. I mean, he wrote the uh, famous speech that Quint gives. Uh, near the end of Jaws as well. Like, he's good for those big, meaty moments. But, you know, some of his closest friends would also say that is one of his weaknesses as well, is that oftentimes his script would start really big and kind of peter out as it went along. Also, let's say just hypothetically that you're watching Red Dawn during a week when it looks like the United States is tearing itself apart. Uh, If you're listening to this years from now, this is uh, the week when there have been mass protests across the United States and around the world after the police murder of George Floyd. There's been talk of uh, the United States military turning against its own citizens. 
You know, we've seen Donald Trump posing in front of a church and wielding a Bible, you know, while tear gassing his own citizens. Look, this is a week when I think we're going to be less sympathetic than other weeks to movies that to to kind of kitschy right wing propaganda that shows the Soviet Union invading that perfect and pure democracy, the United States. Red Dawn is kind of a bummer. It basically shows a bunch of kids who, after the evil Russians and Cubans invade, fight back a little that's served no purpose and then just die meaningless deaths. Like, the idea of Red Dawn and the way that people talk about it in pop culture as this kind of raw, raw, like we can fight off the Ruskies motion picture isn't really the movie that it is. And it's interesting in the way it's been kind of absorbed by, like, pop culture and the way it actually plays out, which is still not good. (laughs) Like, it's not a very fun movie. And it's one that's at war with itself as well, because you can tell, like, the original draft written by Kevin Waterworld Reynolds was an anti-war film, like, very, like, this doesn't work and was more of a Lord of the Flies thing. And then John Milius came over and just rewrote it all. Yeah, and actually, I had I'd never seen Red Dawn until this week, which is amazing because that's the sort of movie that's up my alley. I'm normally the one who's recommending these problematic directors for the podcast. But yeah, I definitely expected it would be a little bit more like Rocky Four, Where it's just clean cut. There's good guys, there's bad guys, and the good guys win over the bad guys. But it's quite, it's kind of slow and a bit dull in the middle section. It's it's more like, you know, the breakfast club than it is if footmen tire you, what will horses do, you know? <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, it would probably be more fun if they were just heroes who were able to defeat the Ruskies using, I don't know, football or something like that. I did like the scene where they're like they're walking through their idyllic small town Americana town. And uh, of course, the town has been destroyed by the Soviets. And you see in the distance that the th- the movie theater, the local, you know, the, the local uh, one plex is playing Alexander Nevsky. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, like a lot of people that know John Milius would argue that, oh, see, he knows what he's doing. He's just putting on a show because he wants to be a rebel. And, you know, reading his biography, he was obviously a rich kid, too. Okay, so we both watched this documentary about him, Milius. It has a murderer's row of interviews. You know, Scorsese, Spielberg, Clint Eastwood, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, uh, Coppola, Schrader, they're all in it. Uh, Kathleen Kennedy's in it. I, I mean... Uh, just an amazing lineup of people who are very eager to talk about John Milius. And I was watching this movie thinking, why do these people find this man so delightful? This man sounds like a jerk who would be at your father-in-law's birthday party and who would insist on talking about how, uh, hey, why are, you, why are you siding with the rioters? You know, that's the kind of guy that this guy is. And then like someone would take you aside at the end and be like, you know, he actually sees your side, but he just wants to question it because, you know, if you question yourself and can articulate the reasons you believe in these things, you'll be able to live a better life. And it's like, no, fuck you. (laughs) Like, come on, man. this This guy enjoys provoking. He likes getting a reaction. There's a story in this documentary where so Milius loved guns. He was a very enthusiastic NRA member. Supposedly, there's some story that, like, in addition to his payment for screenplays, he also wanted to get, like, a nice shotgun, um, you know, which is just, like, one of those stupid eccentric stories that people trade as if it's adorable. Um, and in the documentary, when they're talking about his inevitable downfall, because, 
like his career did peter off at a moment when it should have really taken off right after conan the barbarian and red dawn which were both financial successes but after that um i guess he just got on the wrong side of too many studio executives and there's one point in the documentary where they mentioned that like during a story meeting with the head of the studio, he like pulled out a shotgun and put it on the table and be like, I just want you to know where we're at with the rewrites. And I guess that was supposed to be a joke, but I don't know. Like, uh, I don't like it. And and it's it would be different if I actually liked his work better, but I don't. I mean, but you watched Dillinger, his first directorial effort, and you did like that. I actually thought Dillinger was very good, yes. And and look, to give the man his credit, obviously he's a master wordsmith. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's very good at those speeches. He's quite good at writing complex and nuanced characters. And as a director... Uh, he has a good command of the medium. He's a great visual storyteller. Red Dawn is full of like incredible shots, but it's like, it's kitsch, you know, like the, the ideas of his movies, I don't think are all that compelling. Like the wind and the lion, which is his Lawrence of Arabia, where (laughs) Sean Connery plays an Arabian like bandit with a Scottish accent. Like that movie's tons of fun. It's pulpy and it's wild. But once he starts to get away from that and you get stuff like Red Dawn, like he's making Red Dawn as kind of a joke, but at the same time, he's enjoying what he's doing. So it's weird for people to be like, oh, he didn't actually believe in that stuff. It was just like, you know, something he liked to put on. It's like, yeah, but Red Dawn, you could probably point to thousands of kids who joined the army after seeing Red Dawn. (laughs) Well, I mean, in that documentary, you see George Lucas say something like, yeah, you know, when it comes to his politics, um, you know, I knew the personal John. John was a a teddy bear of a man. He was wonderful. I know he had kind of a persona that he put on. And, you know, that may be true, but uh, I don't don't know him as a person. Everything I hear about him as a person, which, like, that's the thing that everybody in the documentary keeps coming back to, you know, Spielberg and Scorsese are all talking about what a great raconteur he was, how funny he was in person. And then they tell these stories where he sounds like just a total asshole. And I can't even take part in that because he's a total stranger to me. So I'm just left with the work, which mostly leaves me cold. Uh, Looking at George Lucas talk about him, you could definitely tell that like John Milius was the cool guy that George Lucas wanted to be. (laughs) And when they would be together... George felt that, like, it made him cooler hanging around with John. Yeah. Okay, but you mentioned um, Dillinger, which was his first feature-length directorial film. And I thought it was very good, actually. It was an exploitation movie made for American International Pictures, uh, riding on the coattails of Bonnie and Clyde. Warren Oates plays Dillinger, and Ben Johnson plays Purvis. Uh, They're both terrific in it. They both give like great lived in performances. Ben Johnson in his kind of like minimalist, wry way. And Warren Oates, you know, with a lot of swagger. I mentioned that uh, one of the good things about Milius is his ability to write kind of well-rounded and complicated characters. Uh, I think these two characters who are the anchors of the movie, like they, they really kind of keep you going through it. Like they're both textured and, and you both... And you kind of like and kind of hate both of them. And it's, I mean, I guess, you know, knowing what I know about Milius, you can see how he would love the kind of outlaw side of Dillinger, while also fetishizing the law and order side of Purvis. In his passion project, Big Wednesday, which is about a bunch of teenagers who are surfers, and then it follows them through, like, 
almost 15 years of their life after like the fun, you know, surfing adventures, roughhousing, then going to Vietnam and having to settle down and deal with alcoholism and get through your life. Like Big Wednesday is a mature and almost clear eyed viewed that also ends with seemingly 20 minutes of surfing because John Milius just loves this. And he thinks it's so beautiful to look at these people catching that big wave. People may wonder why such a reactionary man was the screenwriter for Apocalypse Now, which I think is basically remembered as being an anti-Vietnam movie. Although that may be an overly simplistic uh, way to put it, because like when Robert Duvall says in that movie, I love the smell of napalm in the morning, like you can kind of tell that knowing that that line was written by John Milius, like like he believes that like John Milius really does love the smell of napalm in the morning. And maybe that's one of the things that makes Apocalypse Now a textured and lasting artwork. The fact that it's sort of at war with itself and the way it represents Vietnam, because there are a lot of scenes in that movie that are so exhilarating. Well, the thing that colors a movie like that for me, or just John Milius as like a writer, is that all this stuff that he's doing, you know, he probably believes it himself, but in some forms, it's an act like he didn't go to Vietnam. He wanted to go to Vietnam. He said they wouldn't let him in because asthma and then he ended up uh, joining, I think, like the National Reserve and they kicked him out because he said, I don't like marching or polishing boots. And it's like, yeah, it would have sucked in Vietnam, too, then, man. You know, compare it, for example, to someone like Oliver Stone, who did go to Vietnam and he was a soldier there. And then his platoon, at least whether you like that movie or not, it is a reflection of his own feelings. While Apocalypse Now is two people who are making a movie based on the idea of something. And that's why they can make it as, like, you know, phantasmagorical as it ended up being. Well, when Coppola famously said that his movie was not about Vietnam, it was Vietnam, like, that's a bit of wishful thinking on the part of the two main creative forces, isn't it? It's like, come on, I know that the Apocalypse Now shoot was miserable and it sounded like a nightmare, but it wasn't Vietnam. Like, you weren't forced to go there against your will. But you can tell from Red Dawn that clearly the point of view that he sympathizes with more, uh, this is something you pointed out to me, Justin, this week, is with the guerrillas. Like, if he could have been in Vietnam fighting on the side of the North Vietnamese, uh, but telling himself he was American, that probably would have been his ideal point of view. Yeah, I think from what I can tell, like his political viewpoint, while talked about a lot as conservative, was mostly anti-establishment and just taking down a villain as it came along. And that is like, uh, but dude... Like, you are the establishment. <laughs> You're like a big, burly, rich white guy who went to private school. Hey, we should talk about his most famous directorial effort, Conan the Barbarian. Mm -hmm. I had never seen it until this week. Can you believe that? What? You're not a big Conan fan? You know, you either go James Bond, Conan, or Woody Allen. I think we know which direction you went, Will. <laughs> well, it's just, it's one of those movies that's so kind of like iconic in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, we've all seen that uh, Frazetta poster of him holding the sword. And, you know, I've, I've seen most of the Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. And yet that one somehow eluded me. Had, had you seen it before? You probably had, right? I had seen it as a teenager and I have very vivid memories in being in my friend's basement. It was the same night we watched Clerks. We did Clerks, Conan the Barbarian, and then Clerks was the audio commentary track. And I remember watching Conan and going, this is boring. <laughs> like, but uh, this film is also very popular. So maybe there's something that I'm not getting, that my cinematic taste 
has not been varied enough for me to understand, you know, the direction that John Milius is going in. And then I watched it recently uh, this week, and I'm like, nah, it's still pretty boring. Oh, man, I was so disappointed. I was all revved up, ready to go for this. I will say that this movie is, like, spectacular in, in many ways. I mean, it's a piece, it's a stupid piece of kitsch, but it's spectacular. The sets are incredible, the costumes are incredible, all the production design, and, like, you know, just, just the, the scale of, of the adventure that it depicts uh, is really something. And But, I mean, when you compare it to any of the, like, thousands of ripoffs of this movie that the Italian film industry pumped out in the 80s, like Lucio Fulci's Conquest or the various Joe D'Amato Ator movies. Like, God, I, I would take any of those over this in a sec because they're more fun. They're just like, they're, they're goofier. They're more willing to entertain. John Milius is taking this source material so seriously that if you explained it to me before I saw the movie, I'd be like, yes, this is the way you should treat this. Like, not as a joke, and that you're kind of buying into its world to deliver something that has that verisimilitude. But then when you watch the movie, you're like, when is Conan just going to pick up the sword and kill some guys? It takes 90 minutes for that to happen. That is someone... I mean, that's the thing. ...who is buying their own bullshit to the point that they don't even feel the needs to hit those kind of genre beats because, no, what they're doing is elevated above that. Yeah, because it's telling a story about, like... Uh, I I don't know what kind of like Jungian archetype he thinks he's exploring here of mm-hmm. like you know some some warrior who like emerged from I don't know I don't know I don't I don't want to analyze it because because I don't want but to. It makes a lot of sense when you hear John Milius say that one of the things that made him fall in love with movies was Japanese cinema, specifically Akira Kurosawa, because that is what Conan is aping—the kind of structure and seriousness. But you almost wanted to, like, show John Milius Sanjuro before he made Conan and be like, no, 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 John, like, this can be fun as well. Like, Conan himself is such a non-entity on the screen. Like, he's basically used as a symbol, a symbol of, like, some kind of pure masculinity. Um, And, you know, Arnold can be an idiosyncratic and charming screen presence. And and he's so humorless here. And it's like it's this void at the center of the movie. There's nothing to there's nothing to connect to emotionally, at least for me. It's so weird because like Conan is defied by his savagery. Like he had a comic called The Savage Sword of Conan. Like he goes into berserker mode. He goes wild. Like he's always willing to jump in a fight. That is not the Conan in this film. This is a Conan that, like, sneaks around, gets caught, beaten up, and captured. Yeah, there's there's a boring character at the center of it, and this is a movie where, like, Conan fights a giant snake and kills it, but it doesn't. Ha- it still doesn't have enough giant snakes in it, because it takes itself too seriously. I mean, I compare this movie to Conquest, which feels like uh, Fulci just got hit on the head and was told to make a Conan movie and was like, okay, I guess it takes place in, I don't know, a dreamscape where everything is fuzzy. No swords either. The main guy, he has uh, nunchucks that are made of bones. (laughs) Like, I'd rather that crazy bullshit than anything that's in Conan the Barbarian. But it was a giant hit. It helped turn Arnold Schwarzenegger into a movie star. He followed it up with Red Dawn, which, I mean, according to interviews with Milius, Red Dawn turned him into a sort of pariah in Hollywood, 
which I don't know if I believe. Um, I think somebody in the documentary says, like, it's not the movie that sunk him because it doesn't matter what your politics are as long as it's making money. He continued to uh, write. He didn't direct a lot after that. He directed a couple more things, none of which is very fondly remembered. But he wrote on, you know, The Hunt for Red October and he wrote on Clear and Present Danger. I'm not sure which movie specifically he has writing credits on. He had a late in life triumph because he co-created the show Rome which was a significant hit. I mean, in that documentary, it's a really sad story where uh, he went to the showrunner of Deadwood and was like, hey, can I be on your writing staff? And the guy was like, no, like you are too qualified for this. And it's like, just give the guy a job, man. Like, why else would I be applying for this? And late in life, he also suffered a stroke, which I think he's probably still recovering from, which uh, robbed him of his talents as a raconteur. But he is still alive. Uh, He's still out there. I Again, I, I found this episode a bit depressing to do in the context of this week, because when you hear all of these people in this documentary talk about, like, what a delightful guy this is, I mean, I mean, that is white privilege, you know? Yeah, it is. It, you know, it reminds me of the classic, like, politicians saying stuff like, you know, you have to reach across the aisle and know that the other person is a friend and we may disagree on the floor, but we're friends behind doors. It's like, what the are you talking about the decision that these people are voting against is killing thousands and thousands of people you cannot be their friend that is not what you were hired for so john milius stillinger was good big wednesday i would recommend as well and hey he wrote some good speeches i feel like people will send us emails telling us how good conan the barbarian is you know i agree with you you know what i wasn't there couldn't absorb it when it happened It's all yours. We get it. We're wrong. This is one of those times you can be like, I disagree with the important cinema club on this particular part. You know, it does make me want to check out the very disparaged um, Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja, only because they're directed by journeyman extraordinaire Richard Fleischer. Yeah, I'm hoping they're more fun. All right. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And we have a letter here. From Chris Barube, and he goes, John Milius and the UFC. Hey, team. So, one of the founders of UFC was a Brazilian jiu-jitsu teacher named Rorion. Pronounced Horion. Gracie. Gracie. Thanks for uh, spelling that out for me, Chris. And one of Gracie's students was John Milius. When they were organizing the first UFC, Milius was recruited as the creative director, though really he was just more of an investor. Milius proposed a number of ideas for the look of the sport, which were interesting. Because UFC was originally supposed to resemble a gladiator match, Milius suggested the fighters battle each other in a stone pit and be carried into the ring on chariots. He also suggested the event be lit by torchlights and that vestigial virgins surround the pit, waiting for the fighters after their match. Needless to say, none of those ideas were adopted. Eventually, the pit concept morphed into a cage shaped like an octagon, the same shape as the fighting arena for Conan the Barbarian. John Milius played a small part, but he is widely seen as one of the fathers of the UFC. Your show has really been helping me through the quarantine. Thanks for doing Agnes Varda, Chris. Oh, thank you, Chris. And I'm delighted to hear that. Um, (laughs) I mean, I think they should have gone with John Milius' design, frankly. (laughs) I mean, it's a totally barbaric sport, so why not just lean into it? What? You're not a fan of the UFC, Will? Uh, I respect the people who do it. I think it takes a lot of talent. 
It's not for me, though. Uh, Chris Berbe actually did a podcast on the history of the UFC. Yes, that podcast is called No Rules, The Birth of the UFC, and it was for uh, 30 for 30, and it's well worth listening to. So our next letter is from Corey Way, and he goes, Hey guys, I've been making my way through the episodes of the ICC. I've been making my way through the episodes of ICC, and I greatly enjoy your insights on classics and hidden gems. And yes, I did fast-track Detour. You know, when we talked about Detour, it was cooler back when we mentioned it, because it hadn't been put out by Criterion yet. Well, I like to think that we're the ones who brought Detour back to prominence. Uh, which is not true, obviously, but I like to think it. And the letter continues, Back in the 90s, I discovered Mean Guns on a random rental night at Blockbuster here in Newfoundland, and it quickly became my number one film recommendation to friends. You can imagine my excitement when I was... Uh, when I discovered it was a favorite of Justin. Oh, well, Corey, sounds like you are still digging in your way through our catalog, and you may not have heard yet that I wrote a book on the director of Mean Guns, Albert Pyun, called Radioactive Dreams, The Cinema of Albert Pyun, available now on all Amazon outlets. And he finally asks, how about an episode about Polish writer-director, I'm going to mangle this name even though I know it's a very famous one, Kritzoff? Kijlowski. I think his works like The Decalogue, The Double Life of Veronique, and The Colors Trilogy would be a great topic of discussion. Soon to be a patron, Corey Way. Ooh, I like that last part. You know, I saw some of Kijlowski's movies when I was a teenager. Like, I saw The Colors Trilogy, but he sort of uh, fell away for me. I didn't, I, I never, I've never really done an intensive deep dive. Yeah, me neither. I recently watched Red, and I'm like, ah, oh, man, this movie is great. And I had seen Double Life of Veronique uh, ages ago, and really liked that as well. So, that's definitely one that we shall put on the docket because we don't do polish cinema very often so you know it's something to tackle did you ever see that polish box set that like martin scorsese had a hand in that had like 15 polish films on blu-ray in a giant box that's why scorsese's the master you know i do wonder if scorsese has any opinions on albert Pune. i would say probably not i think he's a little too modern for scorsese <laughs> Oh, I know that Scorsese has a giant collection of film books, and I'd like to imagine that Radioactive Dreams has been um, slid right in. As per usual, if you do have uh, questions, comments, or anything else, just send it to importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And it's been a while, but there's some new Gold Ninja video releases to talk about, Will. Yes, the Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classic series is back. Longtime listeners and fans will know that the Important Cinema Club Bargain Bin Classics is the Criterion Collection of public domain DVD labels. In the past, we've put out such hits as The Dragon Lives Again, Bella Lugosi Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla, The Three Stooges short films, uh, and this month we are putting out Frank Wisbar's Poverty Row classic, Strangler of the Swamp, from 1946. Frank Wisbar, he's my favorite Poverty Row director. Nobody has ever said ever. <laughs> so. Well... If you folks like Edgar G. Ulmer, Frank Wisbar is kind of along those lines. He was a German emigre, worked a bit during the Third Reich, and then left right before the beginning of the Second World War, found himself working on Hollywood's Poverty Row, where he put out a couple of uh, Poverty Row movies that showed a little bit more effort than the typical Poverty Row fare, the best of which was Strangler of the Swamp. Now, folks, I don't want to oversell Strangler of the Swamp, which I probably should do since we're trying to sell Blu-rays, right? <laughs> no, I think that, like, holding people's expectations back is good, because saying stuff like, it is not a horror film, do not expect that, but expect the moodiest Poverty Row film ever made. Do you like that scene in Detour where it's just like a streetlight and just blackness uh, in the background meant to represent New York? Imagine that. 
over a whole movie. It's a beautiful movie to put on just as you're about to fall asleep and to let it kind of invade your dreams. It stars a young Blake Edwards. Yes, that Blake Edwards. An hour long, just tight as a drum. And our new Blu-ray release, which is lovingly not remastered, containing a beautiful old public domain dupey copy, but is full of exclusive bonus features. Justin and I recorded a commentary track where we talk about Wizbar, we talk about Poverty Row Cinema, we talk about why we think this movie's important. We recorded a video discussion talking about the major Poverty Row movie studios like Monogram, PRC, Republic. We have the little scene short films of Edgar G. Ulmer, mm-hmm. including such classics as Goodbye, Mr. Jones. <laughs> and, you know, some of these short films are genuinely expressionistic when you watch them and you're like, ah, yes, Edgar G. Elmer woke up for this one. When we say short films, we mean like short subjects that he did for like the army and I don't know, uh, the hospital association. And they're some of the best tuberculosis educational films you will ever see. I promise you that. And also, this Blu-ray comes with a whole bonus feature, Frank Wisbar's Devil Bat's Daughter, a sequel to the Bela Lugosi classic. And famously one that has angered fans of the Devil Bat throughout time, because... There's no devil bat in this movie other than flashback footage. But what it is instead is like a weird psychological kind of um, deconstruction of the daughter of Bela Lugosi trying to uh, struggle with the knowledge that her father was a murderer. I think if you go in knowing that, not expecting any devil bat, you will actually enjoy this like hour long kind of thriller. And I'm going to say, you know, loyal, important cinema club listeners know that every Gold Ninja video disc, except for some of them that are the director's cult releases have an entire hidden bonus feature on them. So if you've bought Gold Ninja video discs, go around and play in those menus or pop it into a computer to find those hidden features. And this one is extra special because it is a movie that I got my hands on it, but it is unavailable anywhere on the internet. Like I looked really hard, not on YouTube, not on Vimeo, nowhere and what's weird about it is it's a film called the prairie it's a western and it was all shot on the sound stage it's like no western you have ever seen i watched it i'm the first person ever to log it on letterboxd and it's like weirdly beautiful um again i don't Mm -hmm. want to oversell it it's kind of like a dollar store john ford movie but if you're interested in whiz bar if you see a little bit of poetry in whiz bar you will find that poetry in the prairie and this blu-ray is only ten dollars it's limited to 200 copies and is available at goldninjavideo.com now and this is a two disc months because i'm also putting out an eagle claw essential release holy virgin versus the evil dead starring donnie yen i mean that should be all i have to tell you it also stars uh ken lowe who plays the evil dead people may know him as the super kicker from uh drunken master 2 (laughs) it's a cat 3 movie the version that's on the disc is the nudity version there was one version where like a bunch of like a lot of scenes women were wearing clothes and this is the version where they're all naked in it It has laser swords the back half is packed with wire foo and violence it's just a wild ride we've talked about crazy hong kong films this is a perfect example of them and i include on it uh donnie yen's directorial debut asian cop high voltage a little video essay that i did on donnie yen's entire career and a commentary that I did with filmmaker Alex Chung, who is a great uh, stunt choreographer 
choreographer, director, and fight coordinator in his own right, and has actually worked with Donnie Yen on The Return of Xander Cage, which we talked about in the commentary track. GoldNinjaVideo.com. Go pick it up now before they're all gone. Plus tons of other classic releases, you know? And I gotta point out, a lot of them are running real low. Like, there's only 10 copies left of some of them, so... Uh, grab them now while you still can. Three Stooges, lots of copies of that <laughs> left. So, I love that Three Stooges release. And I've just recently this week, people have messaged me to say like, man, your Three Stooges release is great. So much information hit from like all the different angles. Someone told me they were going to watch everything on it. And I said, ooh, I don't know about that. Yeah, but. <laughs> like you shouldn't actually watch Swing Parade of 1946. We put we put that on there like as performance art, basically. Like we thought it would be fun. What are you talking about? That's Phil Carlson, the director of Phoenix City Story. He's a great director and he's directing the Three Stooges. Curly's in Swing Parade of 1946. Uh, we should point out post-stroke Curly, so he, he can't be hit too hard in the movie. And I mean, you may be forgetting this, Will. We also put on, like, all of their appearances on the uh, Three Stooges cartoon. Oh, brutal. Brutal. Oh, but we do commentary, don't we, on one of them? Like, because their TV thing is there we as well. We did commentary on all four of the shorts and Jerks of All Trades, the TV pilot with Shemp, which is pretty funny. Oh, that TV pilot's really funny. Yeah, so if you haven't picked that up yet and you even like the Three Stooges a little bit, highly recommend it. So what are we doing next week, Will? Next week on the podcast, we're doing one of our more obscure filmmakers. We are talking about Phil Tucker, the director of a movie that was once widely considered one of the worst ever made. He directed Robot Monster, which everyone will know as, well, not everyone, but some people will know as the movie where the alien is a gorilla with a diving helmet on. Mm, oh, I read the Golden Turkey Awards, and they sure tear the stuffing out of that picture. If you have our book, The Important Cinema Club Journal, available on all Amazon outlets, you will see Roman, the gorilla, on the front cover of that book. That's how much we like Roman. <laughs> and wait, is there enough to talk about a whole episode? He's only made this one film, Oh, no. Will? He's made at least two other films. Well, actually, he's made a bunch of movies. He made a bunch of striptease movies, but he also made Dance Hall Racket, which was written by and stars Lenny Bruce. Yes, Lenny Bruce. And he directed another insane, terrible science fiction movie called Cape Canaveral Monsters, which is very strange and dreamlike and is well worth watching. And then after that, he went on to a very successful career in post-production. He worked on the King Kong remake. He worked on a ton of movies. So a very strange, long, fascinating career. And I'm just very excited to watch Robot Monster again. I assume you watch it like every couple of months. It's in my DNA for sure. So until next week, my name is Dustin McClure. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Well, Justin, I've been listening to the new Turner Classic Movies podcast. Uh, Turner Classic Movies has a new podcast now called The Plot Thickens. And what did they choose to do for their first season? Well, they chose Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> and I have heard the story of Peter Bogdanovich's Ugh. life countless times. Yeah. Hundred, hundreds of times. Most of the time from Peter Bogdanovich. Peter Bogdanovich. I mean, that's a man who has his stories and uh, he tells them how he started as a film critic and programmer, how Howard Hawks or no, or was it Frank Tashlin told him, hey, you want to make movies, right? Well, maybe you should move to L.A. That's where we make movies. And so he did. And then Roger Corman and then The Last Picture Show and then Sybil Shepard and then Dorothy Stratton and then everything came down and he was best friends with Orson Welles. But then Orson Welles betrayed him or did he betray Orson Welles? And there was a kind of 
Oedipal falling out almost. Why are you listening to this, Will? <laughs> Why do people ask to hear um, their their grandpa's stories again? I feel like I've heard those stories so often, like I could not sit through it again. But I've heard some important Cinema Club uh, fans say that they're enjoying it. Like these are stories that they have not heard before. It's hosted by Ben Mankiewicz. The production values are excellent. You know, Bogdanovich is in good form. They also interview some of his associates like, you know, Sybil Shepard and a couple of other people. I think Roger Corman shows up briefly in it. I also know that the You Must Remember This podcast is doing Polly Platt right now. Oh, really? Who was Bogdanovich's first wife. And yeah, she's doing a whole season on Polly Platt. Ooh, I like that. Polly Platt has this particular place in film history as being remembered as kind of like the the secret weapon in all of Bogdanovich's best movies. You know, they divorced because of his affair with Sybil Shepard during the making of Last Picture Show. I know she worked on What's Up Doc and Paper Moon also, but... Uh, relations between them became irreparably frayed after that. And then the minute she left, um, his movies weren't as good anymore. No, they started to suck is what you're trying to say. Yeah, they started to suck. And then she went on to work on a lot of other movies. She produced Say Anything. She worked on a lot of James L. Brooks's movies like Terms of Endearment and Broadcast News, I think. Um, and, And I think it's called, I think the season of You Must Remember This is called like The Hidden Woman or something like that, or The Invisible Woman, maybe. Sort of using her as representative of the kind of work that women do in the film industry that isn't often recognized in film history. And so that's probably what I should be listening to. But uh, instead, I've been listening to old Bogdanovich. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm not going to listen to that Peter Bogdanovich one, but I will listen to that Polly Platt one. I got to say, though, I'm not a big fan of like those really well-produced podcasts where it's like someone is telling you a story when i listen to podcasts my favorite ones are like two people or three people just talking stuff out i probably prefer just hearing the like unedited 15 hour interview between ben mankowitz and peter bogdanovich 